This is the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Hey, so there's three topics in church that if you talk about them for more than a few minutes, the crowd gets tense. So if you start talking politics for more than a couple of minutes, people get tense. If you start talking about money and giving and generosity for more than a couple of minutes, all the stingy folks get tense. (laughs) And if you're talking about sex and sexuality, everybody, most people get a little bit tense. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so um, over the next uh, few weeks, uh, we're going to be doing a series that we are calling A Theology of Sexuality. And we're going to talk about the real stuff. Here's the thing. I I believe that, that, that the church must talk about the real stuff, even when it makes us feel awkward. You guys agree with that? That we got to talk about the real stuff. Four of you guys want to talk about the real stuff. The rest of you guys just want me to pat you on the back, send you home, and I am sorry to disappoint you. Uh, But the next few weeks, we're going to be doing this series of theology of uh, sexuality, and a few things about this. One, uh, this series is, is, uh, is not primarily about how to help you have a better sex life. About a third of the crowd is now suddenly disappointed. (laughs) Like if we have to talk about it, at least help it be better. Um, And But it's going to be thoughtfully rooted in Scripture. We want to think deeply about what does God have to say about sex and sexuality and all of the things connected to that. Uh, our goal, as, as I and our other teachers in this series, is to approach this uh, thoughtfully rooted in Scripture, but also at the same time humbly, and, and that I don't know everything there is to know about these topics, and, and our other teachers don't know everything there is to know, and, and so definitely an attitude of humility, uh, definitely uh, an attitude of care and grace. Um, as we're going to unpack this over the coming weeks, we're, we're going to discover that, 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 that none of us have batted a thousand in this regard. And so the, the purpose of this series is, is not to cause a heap shame on us. And the purpose of this series isn't that anyone would be uh, caused to, to uh, relive past hurts in a way that just brings pain, but ultimately our desire would be that that we would all come out of this series with a greater uh, sense of wholeness and health and healing and really just flourishing as God has designed us to in this area of our lives. And part of the reason, I want to share with you mostly today, why are we talking about this? Why are we going to take a few weeks and deal with this? And, and, and part of the reason is because of all of the rapid change in our culture and really the last 60 years has just caused so many questions and people grappling with so many issues of a guy named Ronald Rollheiser and another pastor named Matt Erickson, they, they, between the two of them, identified these really these five shifts 
that, that, that have really um, come about in the last 60 years um, and that, that have really just changed some, just really changed so much of the game when it comes to, to how people think about sex and sexuality. I just want to share with you uh, uh, these five things. Here's, here's the first one. They're, they're, in the last 60 years, we've seen this disconnection of sex and procreation. For all of human history, uh, until in the last century, um, if, if people were having sex, there was this awareness of, I, I better have sex with someone that if I end up having a child with them, I will not greatly regret it. There was this direct connection that sex and, and, and having kids, these were very much connected. And I don't think we realize how, uh, how just relatively new the idea of being able to have sex without it guaranteeing that if you do it enough, you're gonna end up having some kids is that, did you realize that it wasn't until 1972, get this, some of you remember, most of you don't. But it wasn't until, up until 1972, there were 26 states in America where unmarried couples were unable to get the birth control pill. It's only 50 years ago. And, and so, and listen, Life Church is not anti-birth control. Some people should use it all the time, for sure. Um, and, uh, but there, uh, uh, for all of human history, there was this connection but between sex and procreation, they, they, were, they were unable to be separated in the ways that they can be now. And, 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 and connected to that is, is, it's really been in the last half century that we've really seen in Western culture this disconnection of sex and marriage. Now, we obviously, from the beginning of time, people have had sex outside of marriage, but it really wasn't until the sexual revolution in the 1960s and, and, and all the things that followed that, that it became um, socially acceptable for people to have sex outside of marriage. And so we saw this disconnection of sex and procreation. Then we see this disconnection of sex and marriage in our culture. And then we see this disconnection of sex and love, or what we might call hookup culture. Described well by the poet Fitty Scent. <laughs> I'm into having sex, I ain't into making love. And really, even in the, in the 60s and, and beyond, there, there was this idea of, okay, we don't, wanna be, we don't want our sexual relationships to be bound by marriage, but let's... So, but as long as two people really care about each other, maybe would even say two people love each other, then in that scenario, if two people care about each other, love each other as a, as a demonstration of that relationship, that, that, that in that, their, the mindset was that sex would be um, acceptable. It, it was no, there was no longer the, this idea that people have to be married but, married, but this idea that there should at least be care and commitment and love. But we've seen this rise, this rapid rise of what can be described as hookup culture, where, where, where now there's this idea of, of, I don't even really have to love you. I don't have to care about you. I don't even really even have to know you. This is simply a recreational sport activity. This separation, this disconnection of sex and love, which is really connected um, with the influence of technology on sexuality. Now, I am 45 years old and been married uh, this July 25 years. And cheer for Claire. Um, and so, uh, 
But I, I can't imagine. So by God's grace, I've never had to like date in the, con- in, in the culture of, of dating with technology. And so uh, the, te- the technology has changed. This, uh, I actually skipped ahead once. So go, throw up number five. You can throw, I, I went out of order. Um, we'll go back to number four in a minute. Um, and so, uh, but this technology, we're, we're now, the, it's, this, it's kind of assisted this whole hookup culture. And, and so I've never used, um, you know, I've never used a dating app, never used eHarmony or Christian Mingle or, or never used hookup apps, uh, apps. I've heard Tinder described as saying it's like this. It's, it's like Amazon Prime for the quick delivery of hot people. And it would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. And so technology has, has radically changed the game when it comes to relationships, sex, and sexuality. And, and, and then number four, this, this shifts in understanding of same-sex same relationships and gender. I just wanna just help blow your mind. It's, it's 10 years ago, President Obama was opposed to same-sex marriage. And so 10 years ago, a, a Democratic president was opposed to same-sex marriage, and now you, you'd be hard-pressed. It's, 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 there's just been a radical shift in, in, in a relatively short period of time. And so, so really, in the course of some of your lifetimes, you ha- have seen just this, the, the, what has been uh, normally accepted norms um, for Western civilization and really for much of human culture through, through the, the, the course of human existence ha- has been turned on its head in the last 60 years, which I think has causes many people to wonder, where, well, well, what does God have to say about this? And, and how do we wrestle with these issues? And so we're gonna talk about this over the next few weeks. And so today I just wanna introduce, what are three reasons that we must get these things right. Here's the first one. Nothing else in your life has the potential for so much joy and beauty and at the same time, so much pain. And we see this in in scripture. Some people wrongly think that God is anti-sex. God sees it differently. He says, it was my idea. I invented it. If God was running for president, it would very much be on a pro-sex platform. And we see this in the Bible. There's a whole book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, that is, is this pretty racy love story. Now, some people think it's primarily a, a picture of God's love for us. I, I believe it, it is kind of a dualistic purpose. It is also this beautiful picture of, of a man and woman in love. And, and so there, God is definitely pro-sex. We see in Proverbs this picture of sex as both source of joy and then also source of pain and harm. We see in Proverbs 5, 15, and from the message translation, it says, do you know the saying? Drink from your own rain barrel. Draw water from your own spring-fed well. It's true, he's he's, he's talking about this analogy. He says, otherwise you may one day come home and find your barrel empty and your well polluted. Your spring water is for you and you only, not to be passed around among strangers. It's this picture of, 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 uh, in this culture, you know, obviously uh, they didn't have just access all the time to just um, uh, purified water on demand. And so this idea of if, you're, if, if your water source gets polluted, you're in a big, big mess. He's using this as a picture of, 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 of sex and marriage. 
marriage and these things. He says, bless your fresh flowing fountain. And then he says, what are you talking about? He says, enjoy the wife you married as a young man, lovely as an angel, beautiful as a rose. Don't ever quit taking delight in her body. Some of you looking for a refrigerator verse for the week? There it is. <laughs> Never take her love for granted. And so we say that, that, that in Scripture, there's this clear idea that, that sex can be this uh, incredible source of joy, but then he keeps going, and he say, what he's saying is he's saying, hey, hey, sex in, in, under God's design is an incredible source of joy, but, but once you step outside of that, it's also going to be this incredible source of pain. He says, why would you trade enduring intimacies for cheap thrills with a prostitute, for a dalliance with a promiscuous stranger? Mark well that God doesn't miss a move you make. He's aware of every step you take. The shadow of your sin will overtake you. You'll find yourself stumbling all over yourself in the dark. Death is the reward of an undisciplined life. Your foolish decisions, 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 hooked on phonics did work for me. Decisions trap you in a dead and so we see this, this picture in this, these few verses that sex, nothing else in your life has the potential to be such a great source of joy, but such a great source of pain. And so we see over and over and over again in the Bible, just this clear picture of, of, of that, that when, when people step outside of God's design for sex, it always ends badly. Every story of polygamy in the Bible ends badly. Every, every story of adultery in the Bible ends badly. We see tragic stories of rape and incest in the Bible that just bring about pain for generations after generations. We see that all of these things, that there's nothing in your life that has the potential to be a great source of life and joy, but at the same time, a, a great source of, of pain. And, and obviously, we're not gonna do this, but if we were just to go around and person after person just, just share their thoughts of, of, yes, the moments of joy, but also the incredible pain, this has just been your human experience. And so these issues, getting them right, will, will have a determinative effect on, on just the, what your life is like. But here's the second thing maybe even more important than the first. These issues of sex and sexuality and all these things are, are really um, the overflow of much deeper issues in my life. They're, they're really connected to much bigger issues like this. Who or what is my source of authority? We see Jesus in Matthew 19, he's asked about divorce and in this culture, it was uh, men would, would regularly divorce their wife if dinner was too late or, or not cooked well or for any other reason. He could just, just dismiss his wife, which would ultimately leave her in an incredibly difficult situation, no way to survive, no way to take care of herself. And, and, and so these religious teachers that, that, that knew the law perfectly were asking Jesus about it. And then, so then Jesus answers, and he says, Have you, haven't you read and what he's about to quote is from the very beginning of Genesis. It's like if anybody knows in this time and the Jewish culture would know any part of the Old Testament, it would definitely have been this beginning part. So he says to the religious leaders, haven't you ever read how the whole thing begins? And he says this. He says that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. 
the two will become one flesh. All of these teachers would have understood that this uniting, this one flesh, it's all a, a part of this sexual union. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so here's, here, here's the, this big question. If God made me, and if God made sex, well, so Jesus is clear and in addressing these religious leaders, God made you and God made sex. If God made me and God made sex, he is the authority on my sexuality. Now listen, if, if, if God didn't make me and if God didn't make sex and if I, I am simply just an accident of natural selection and, and then, then at that point, then really it is just up to me what I wanna do. But if God indeed made me, and if God indeed made sex, he is the authority on the topic. And so, listen, if sex is primarily about your preferences and desires, then what that does is that makes the individual, each individual, the authority over what goes sexually. But, but if sex and sexuality is an intentional aspect of God's design for humanity, which seems to be the opinion of Jesus, that sex and sexuality are inextricably linked to, to God's creation, that God created us, he cre he cre and that, and that in, as part of this, he creates sex and sexuality, then it ultimately comes down to this authority issue. Do I come to the conclusion that God created me, God created sex, and therefore he is the authority? I am not this autonomous, um, just it's a free agent out there to decide what goes on with, with me and my, my sex and sexuality, that he is the authority on the topic. So really these issues really come down to this, this, these root questions of, of, of who is the authority in my life? And as, a, as followers of Jesus, we've, we've answered the question, saying that I'm going to live my life with Jesus as my authority. And here's this next question. Who does my body belong to? There are certain phrases that we've heard enough that, that we can f finish the phrase. Great taste, less filling. Help me here. I know you guys don't watch TV, you're Christians and all that. Great taste. Wheaties, breakfast of my body. But here's the thing. For every person, whether they recognize that God as their authority, he, if God made them, then they belong to him. Now, but as followers of Jesus, it's this whole other level. See, whether, you're, whether you realize it or, or not, the nature of being the creation of a creator who has a design for your sexuality causes you to be under the authority of that creator. Some people don't recognize that, but as Christians, we're doubly under this authority. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You're saying, ultimately, you're doing harm to yourself. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? He says, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you. And he says, who is in you, whom you have received from God. But then here's the key phrase. You are not 
your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. But here's the unfortunate reality. That, that, one, that, that many times as Christians, we, we live as sexual atheists. We, we, we've adopted the narrative of the culture. We've forgotten that God is our authority, that, that he created us, he created sex. He's the authority on sexuality. And, and, and that my body belongs to him. Uh, the recent study from Christian Mingle asked a question. Uh, Christian singles 18 to 59 were asked, would you have sex before marriage? The response, 63% of the single Christian respondents on Christian Mingle, where you're going to find a perfect Christian, indicated yes. 68% of church-going men view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn on the internet. And so there's this disconnect that many times our tendency. Now listen, I think there's multiple levels of this. I think it's one thing to know the right thing, desire to do the right thing, and at times fail to do the right thing. Paul talks about that in Romans 7, right? He says, the good I want to do, I don't do. The bad I don't want to do, I, I do do. And, 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 then he, and then he continues in Romans 8.1, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So honest, legitimate struggles are absolutely different than just saying, I am going to willfully disregard the truth of God in this area of my life. And so what it seems like, and so it's one thing in, 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 in the heat of the moment for someone to make a mistake that they honestly regret and repent to God for and seek to flee that sin, but it's another thing when filling out a survey, there's few less passionate moments than when filling out a survey. I mean, you're filling out a survey to just say, yes, I'm, I'm all in on that. It, it's, and so in that regard, there's this sexual atheism that says in this area of my life, I, I, I'm going to separate what I live, what I think and do in this area from the rest of my Christian experience. And which takes us to third question. So these deep questions of who is my authority? Who do I, what is, who does my body belong to? Third, where is my identity found? You see, the way we approach our sexuality is inextricably linked to how we see ourselves. These deep questions of life, like who am I and what is the meaning of life? And, and, and we live in a time, if uh, I'm gonna challenge some of you that uh, the next th three or four minutes will feel a little bit heady and some of you that have a little ADD like I do will be tempted to zone out. If you, if you need to play with your phone for three minutes, just don't look at anything inappropriate. Um, here it is. We live in a time marked by what's called radical individualism. The idea of individualism is it's, it's kind of about this whole weight that we attach to individual thought and action uh, relative to the importance of authority and traditional institutions. So it, it really comes down to where does my sense of meaning and identity come from? 
as my source of meaning and identity. So for much of human history, people found much of their source of, of meaning and, and identity for, from external sources. For, for instance, uh, this, it would be found outside of yourself. Uh, it, things like nature and nation or tribe or heritage, community, class, family, religion. These were the way, for, this is from, from the, for millennia, the, the way that, that, that people thought of themselves and their sense of identity and their sense of meaning. So like, so for instance, someone might've said, I, I might've said, I am, I am human. I am male. This relationship to nature and then nation. I might say, I'm, I'm American or heritage. I am British or family. I'm a love or religion. I'm a Christian, and I'm just using that in the generic sense of, of, of people that would, would identify that as their generic religion. There were these kind of external sources of, of, of meaning and, and sense of, of identity and purpose and the meaning of life. But this, what, what radical individualism does is it would define my source of meaning and identity primarily found by looking inside of myself. How do I feel? What do I want? What is my truth? What makes me happy? What do I think is my authentic self? And what radical individualism would say is that any, any external authority or tradition is oppressive or repressive. And so radical individualism is marked by statements like, be true to yourself. I would say be true to yourself unless yourself is sucky. Another phrase is like, you do you. Live your truth. Listen to your heart. Sometimes my heart wants to run people off the road. <laughs> if I listened to my heart full time, terrible things would happen. But radical individualism says, says, look inside yourself to discover your sense of identity and the meaning of life. Now it must be added that radical individualism has had incredibly harmful effects in the decline of all human communities, institutions, neighborhoods, families, leading to greater isolation, loneliness, division, depression, and anxiety. Now, now really, as Christians, we, we really have a third way that we discover our sense of... It's, we're, really, we're really not, in a sense locked into the way that people have historically found their sense of identity, primarily in nation or class or family or, or these labels. And it's definitely not primarily in the sense of looking to ourself. The way we as followers of Jesus find our identity and a sense of meaning is really in this third way. And that in some sense, it's similar to the first and that I find my sense of meaning and identity is not found primarily looking inside of myself. It's definitely found in a sense primarily outside of me in God who has revealed himself in nature and in his word and in the person of Jesus and that he as the creator is the one who defines my sense of meaning and identity. From creation, I'm created in the image of God. This whole idea 
that, that you are created in the image of God and whoever you're thinking about having sex with or wanting to have sex with or actually having sex with also created in the image of God. It's foundational that, that I'm created in the image of God, created for the purpose of relationship and glorifying him, and, and listen, and if you're a follower of Jesus, this whole identity thing goes to whole new levels that, that because of the work of Jesus, my identity is that I'm adopted into God's family and that I have been made holy and that I am a new creation and that I am God's masterpiece and that I am joint heirs with Jesus and that I have been set apart. That, 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 that those, these things, that, that, that God as my creator, the one who created me, determines my identity, and, and, and that he's given me this whole new identity in Jesus, that that's where my sense of meaning and identity is definitely from outside myself, mostly. But there is this other sense in which as Christians, Similar to that second way a little bit, that second way that says, well, look inside yourself to discover your sense of meaning and identity. While that is mostly false, there is a sense in which for the Christian, there, there is this sense that because the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, that, that, and, and that he, as we, as, as we partner with God's work in our life, that he is changing us, changing our desires, changing our thoughts, changing, our, our, changing us from the inside, that, that, that yes, that, that, that we look to, to God as creator and, and we look to God in scripture and manifest in the person of Jesus. And, and then yet, and then yes, we also, when there's these sense where we look inside ourselves in, in terms of us as this new creation, God changing our desires to line up with the mind of Jesus, the fruit of the spirit, the character of Christ. And so really, it, these issues of sex and sexuality, that's so much more than, than, than who you have sex with and, and, and what you're looking at on a computer, all of those things simply ha are related to these root issues of where is my authority found? Who do I belong to? Whose body is this? Where is my identity found? Is it, is it found in external labels primarily or is it found in just looking into myself and what are my urges and desires saying or is, or is it look, looking to the creator, looking to his revelation in scripture, his revelation in the person of Jesus? Here's the third point, we're done. See, here's the thing. That identity thing matters so much. See, when my identity is, is rooted in Christ, it will drive everything about my life, and one of the most obvious areas will be my sexuality. If my identity is found mostly in my own urges and desires and passions, then that's going to define so many things about my life, but nowhere clearer than my sexuality. This identity thing matters. Here's the third thing. These issues are ultimately about God and the gospel. Again, it's so much more than a biological function. It's so much more than a romantic evening. These are deep issues at the core of who we are and at the core of who God is and his relationship with us. So, you know, we see all through the scripture, we see this idea that sex is meant to be a picture of God's forever 
never failing covenant love. We see in the Old Testament, Israel portrayed as God's wife. We see in the New Testament, the church portrayed as the bride of Christ. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. This passage that we normally look at in the context of marriage, I'm just gonna help us see it clearly in the context of sex. You're welcome. (laughs) Ephesians 5.31, Paul quoting Jesus, quoting from Genesis, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. See, that uniting, that one flesh, it is definitely talking about the sexual union. It is definitely a reference to sex. And then he says, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And I was talking with one of our staff earlier in the week, and they were saying, it just really weirds me out, mixing my sex thoughts and mixing my God thoughts, and yes, I think that's what Paul's saying. Instead of saying, this really grosses me out, he's saying, this is a mystery. We're mixing our sex thoughts in marriage and our God thoughts. This is a mystery. (laughs) Let me quote great scholar R.C. Sproul. Remember his book on marriage? He says this. The marriage state is the image of my relationship to God in a profound way. Both my relationship to God and my relationship to my wife involves a covenant. See, see the thing is, we, we live in a contractual, contract, contractual society. But, but when we talk about marriage, we're not talking about a contract. We're talking covenant. We'll unpack more of that in the weeks to come. But, but it's, a, it's, it's like a contract times a thousand. It's this deep, deep forever kind of covenant. He says, my, my relationship to my wife involve a covenant structure in which mutual parties are bound to each other by commitments sealed with oaths. Both involve knowing in intimacy. Both create a place where I can be naked and unashamed. In marriage, I enter the most intimate of all human relationships. It involves risk. But if it's to work, I must be naked. If I expose myself utterly and discover that my wife is seeing all that I am, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and understands who I am and still loves me, then I experience something at the human level of the most deep and profound love of all. God has seen all of me, and Christ, he accepts me and gives himself to me. See, what we see is, is that the way God designed it and that sex is this physical demonstration of, of these two people giving themselves completely to one another, knowing themselves. The thing about marriage, you've been married long enough. Your spouse 
knows the best things about you and the worst things about you. I mean, if Claire just wanted to get up and make you guys all hate me in five minutes, let me tell you the four dumbest things Dave's ever done. She knows. That's the nature. But she still loves me. She knows me better than anyone other than God and loves me more than anyone other than God. And so sex is supposed to be this physical demonstration, this picture, this forming of this covenant that ultimately is a type and a shadow and a picture of God, his love for me that ultimately led Jesus to hang naked on a tree, fully giving himself to us, not because he thought we were perfect, but in spite of the fact that he knows us completely, he gave himself fully for us. That's this whole idea when Paul says, hey, it's a mystery, this whole sex thing, marriage thing, it's a mystery how, how it all points to God and us, but it's this idea of someone knowing you as well as you could be known physically and spiritually and emotionally and mentally, knowing the good, the bad, the ugly, and that, that, that these Two people fully give themselves to one another in intimacy that is not simply sexual, but the sex is this, this picture, this demonstration, this coming together in this covenant that is ultimately this picture of, of God's incredible love for us, his covenant never giving up on us, knowing us completely and loving us supremely kind of love. So we have to get these issues right. Because when we get them wrong, so much pain comes. Because these issues really point to the deepest issues of life. Like, who's the authority? Well, who, who owns me and who owns my body? What, what is my, where is my identity found? Is, is it found in external labels? Is it found by my drives and my impulses? Or is it found, and, and, and the God who made me and gave himself for me, it's this picture of the gospel. 20% of you, I'm gonna up it. I'm gonna say 20% of you are so prude, you're gonna say the next three or four weeks I ain't coming. He's talking about sex. We haven't thought about sex in a decade. Let's not do that. 20% of you are scared I'm going to say something that you don't agree with. Now, here's the thing. There is no point in going to a church that only says the things you agree with. I'll see you guys next week. Let me pray for you. <laughs> Father, we love you. Lord, we just confess that we don't know all the things. Lord, but you do. We don't even know when to start the music, God. <laughs> so Lord, I just pray that you, Lord, as we deal with these deep, deep issues of the heart, Lord, I know for some this brings so much pain. Lord, I pray that, that even in the course of this series, that, 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 that you would bring healing and that you would bring hope. Lord, where there's areas of confusion, that you would bring clarity. Lord, where healing needs to come, that it would come. Lord, where grace needs to be received, that it would be received. Where repentance needs to happen, that it would happen. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.